gospel reading from John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will, be, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, we have a uh, wonderful uh, congregation that is filled with people full of God's gifts. Uh, and I've asked Laura, where is Zach, um, to... Uh, to open up God's word for us this evening. Laura, will you please come and, um, and show us into the scriptures? I'd be honored to, Jim, thank you. I really do wanna say that just before I begin, um, I am so honored to be a part of this congregation. Um, each one of you, as I see your faces across Zoom tonight, um, it is such a blessing to be together in this way, even though it's not perhaps the way that we would have wished we could have be together, um, that we wish that we could be sharing the Lord's Supper together. We wish that we could be um, embracing one another and shaking one another's hands. But even though we cannot be together in that way tonight, I am just so honored to be together with each of you to say those words of the, Lord, of the Apostles' Creed together and, and to worship together. Tonight, friends, I would like you to invite you to enter deeply into the story of Maundy Thursday. Stories can be a great comfort for us in uncertain times like the times that we are living today. The stories we tell one another in times of grief and loss, like the global COVID-19 pandemic that we are living through today, those stories that we tell help us to imagine the world in a different way and help us to see our experiences from God's perspective. From verse one of John 13, Jesus absolutely captures our attention. The time has come for the Passover feast Jesus and his disciples are just outside Jerusalem, where Jesus has been teaching in the temple 
and drawing large crowds. As Jesus and his friends gather in an upper room for the Passover Seder dinner, Jesus is thinking about his future. The end of his time on earth has come. He will not be with his disciples much longer. What does it look like to love these men well in his last hours with them? The final phrase of verse one is difficult to translate from the Greek, but it forms a key idea. It reads literally, having loved his own who were in the world, to the end, Jesus loved them. The Greek word for end, telos, carries a certain philosophical weight. It means not just, not just the end of a thing, the stopping of it, but its ultimate fulfillment. As the writer of this book, the Apostle John is trying to express how Jesus is bringing his love for the disciples to complete fulfillment, to its end goal. The end goal of Jesus' time on earth and the end goal of his love for his disciples and all of God's people on earth was always the cross. It was love that drove him to the cross. Jesus had come to solve the human problem of sin that had existed since the creation of the world. Jesus had come to bring peace to the nation of Israel that had continually fallen into cycles of disobedience since God had chosen them. Jesus' love for sinful humanity led to one end, to his death on the cross. The cross is the fulfillment of Jesus' entire work on earth. And the cross is the fullest expression of Jesus' love. And so on Monday, Thursday, Jesus fully knew where he was headed. But how could he get that across to his disciples? For Jesus, a natural-born teacher, his love began to look like an object lesson. As a teacher myself, I can identify Jesus needed these disciples to understand just a little bit in a limited way what they were about to witness as he went to the cross to die. He had tried to make reference to this many times in his oral teaching, that he would be killed on a cross, that he would lay in the grave three days and rise again. But the disciples were still not getting it. As they come to Jerusalem, at least one of them is hoping that Jesus has arrived as a conquering king. They hope that he will sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, throw off the Roman oppressive power, and that they can sit as his right hand and his left hand and as his honored advisors. But that is not to be. Jesus needs them to understand that the systems of honor and power that they take for granted are not the ways of God's kingdom. So, in the middle of, at, or just at the beginning of the Passover meal, Jesus gets up from the meal. Jesus arrived at this Passover feast as the most honored guest. He reclined at the table in the place of honor. We know from the other gospels that the disciples have just been bickering about their own status and positions of honor. Who will sit where and who will have the most honor in Jesus's new kingdom? Knowing your own place in the social hierarchy was an important value in the Greco-Roman world where these people lived. But Jesus gives up his place of honor at 
at the meal. Jesus gets up and then he takes off his outer garments. These fine clothes that were fit for a Passover feast, for a guest of honor, he carefully folds and he lays them down. Stripping down to his loincloth, now clothed only like a lowly servant, Jesus wraps a towel around his waist. And although the men had performed the ritual cleansing before they arrived for the feast, bathing in the local mikvah, washing their hands and their faces before the meal, no one had been on hand to wash their feet as they entered the upper room that night. It does not say in the scripture, but it doesn't take a lot of imagination to imagine that several of them might have been quite put out about the lack of that service. Outraged that no one had done the job, but they were certainly not ready to give up status by taking on the job themselves. But Jesus knew his own status only too well. He knew that as it states in verse 3, the Father had put all things under his power, and that Jesus had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus was not worried about his own honor here. He had nothing to prove. There is one specific thing on Jesus' mind. It is the mission that he came for, the one we read about in church this past Sunday in Philippians 2. Though Jesus was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and then by giving his life on the cross. Here at the Last Supper, Jesus gives his disciples an object lesson. He has not come to recline at the table and to be served, but instead to serve them. So Jesus pours water into a basin and begins to make his way around the table, washing his disciples' feet and drying them with the towel wrapped around his waist. Jesus does for them in the outward, physical action of foot washing what he has offered them inwardly and spiritually throughout the three years of his ministry. He is taking what was dirty and making it clean. Jesus is washing their dirty feet, just as he has offered to wash them of their sins. Jesus has set his face toward the future of the cross. And Jesus has given his disciples the object lesson that an outward and physical sign of an inward and spiritual gift of grace is on its way. But Jesus' humble actions force the disciples to a crisis point. When Jesus comes around the table to Simon Peter, and Peter protests, Peter is a humble fisherman who has made his way up in the world to be one of the right-hand men of the rising king. He's trying to process what is going on as that king has stripped down to look like a servant. Lord, he asked Jesus, do you wash my feet? Jesus answers him gently. What I am doing you do not now understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter comes back with more fire. You shall never wash my feet. It's too much for Peter, for his master and Lord to kneel down and do the work of a slave. 
Where was Jesus's dignity, his sense of place? Jesus is having none of it though. He tells Peter that if Peter is not washed both physically at the table and spiritually by accepting Jesus's odd upside down salvation from a servant king, then Peter can't have a share in Jesus's kingdom. Simon Peter responds quickly, asking Jesus to wash his head and his hands as well. But Jesus reminds him that his head and hands were clean already. This moment had become a test for Peter. Peter recognizes Jesus's power, but he keeps getting it all wrong. Peter is still thinking in terms of the honor and shame of this world, which will lead him to violently defend Jesus in the garden. And when his attempt with a sword fails, the world's idea of honor and shame will lead him to not to deny having anything to do with Jesus three times. Without words, Jesus's actions confront Peter with a challenging question. Can you accept the terms of my salvation? Will you accept a suffering servant king who not only humbles himself to wash your feet at table, but who will endure the shame of hanging on a cross next to common thieves for your salvation? Jesus wants his disciples to see clearly past their prejudices and presuppositions about kingship, exactly what Jesus's mission is. I have to say, I empathize with Peter some days. Wouldn't it be nice to have an all-powerful God who can snap his fingers to take away sin and suffering from the world? Why couldn't Jesus just sit eternally on a physical throne in Jerusalem, kicking out the Romans, uplifting Jewish culture, and blessing the whole world through flourishing business and trade? We do hope for that someday. But first, we needed the cross. The God that Peter imagines, the one who stamps out suffering without really dealing with the problem of sin, looks a little bit more like the comic book villain, Thanos, from the Avenger movies. He could snap his fingers to relieve suffering, but only at the cost of millions of lives. This was not quite what Peter had in mind. Jesus's words echo again as he heads toward the cross. What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Jesus's object lesson of the foot washing has shown his disciples to be cleansed of the daily dust of sin that accumulates as we walk through life in this world, to have relationship with God first in love. Jesus had to face the cross. The question that Jesus put to his disciples by his actions on that first Maundy Thursday, Jesus also puts to us here tonight. Can you accept the terms of Jesus's salvation. Perhaps you feel unsure about Jesus because of the suffering in the world right now. Perhaps you feel angry that God should be able to stop suffering but doesn't. Perhaps you just don't understand why Jesus would willingly face the humiliation of servanthood and sacrifice. Perhaps you have already put your faith in Christ like Peter did yet you still find that you struggle against doubt, prejudice, 
and faulty presuppositions raging inside you about what God's kingdom might look like. You're not alone. Many everyday saints have taken Jesus up on his terms of salvation in the past 2,000 years. Their stories offer us a glimpse of what a life is like following in the steps of King Jesus. And each of their stories are a part of the bigger story of salvation. I'd like to share with you just one story that has really stuck out to me in the past few weeks as I think about the, the rich history of Christianity that encourages us at this difficult time. Within 50 years of Christ's death, Christianity had spread throughout the Roman Empire and especially to the city of Rome. Rome was a wealthy, bustling city at that time, but it could be a dangerous one. Overcrowding and wealth disparity caused disease to spread quickly in the city. Classical historian Rodney Stark explores in his book, The Rise of Christianity, how several plagues passed through Rome during the first three centuries after Christ. At the worst of it, as many as 5,000 people were dying in Rome in a single day. Romans fled the city when they could, leaving behind sick family members and leaving the dead, even unburied. But the Christians did not abandon the city. They stayed and they served their neighbors at great self-sacrifice. And it was the servant example of Christ, both in his actions like foot washing and in his sacrifice unto death, that gave Christians the courage to nurse others back to health to the best of their abilities. They didn't have the, the conveniences of modern medicine or the knowledge of modern medicine, but what they could do, they did. Sometimes their offerings were as simple as making sure that people who were ill still had water and food. Many people came to Christ as they were saved through their illnesses, and many people came to Christ as they developed relationships with the Christians who had not abandoned them in their hour of need. And when others returned to their city and found that their loved ones had been saved, they also came to Christ. And this accounts for a huge rise in Christianity at that time. Simple acts of service and love. That same history stretches through the Middle Ages, through the early Reformation, and into modern Christianity. In the face of every difficulty that Christians have faced through history, Jesus' love continually called God's people to give up their own rights for the joy of seeing others saved and reconciled to God. Now, in this Easter season, we have willingly given up many rights, especially our rights to gather and worship together. And we hope that this is also for the protection and salvation of many. This Easter season, may Jesus' example of washing his disciples' feet and his example of going willingly to the cross out of love give you hope and give you peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.